Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a peach Bellini. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a glass of red wine, and we are continuing our exploration of the real-life cases behind Lifetime movies. In this week's episode, we will be looking at two cases of identity theft from both the sides of the victim and the perpetrator. The stories of Michelle Brown and Clark Rockefeller show the inadequacies in our system and the difficulty with pursuing and punishing those who have their identity stolen and those who seek to craft a new life using someone else's good name and reputation. In 2004, Identity Theft, the Michelle Brown story, debuted on Lifetime and showcased the crime that at the time many people did not fully understand. Michelle Brown was a regular American citizen living in Los Angeles, California. She had worked from the time she was 17 to build a great credit history and create a life that included all of the American dream. This, of course, included purchasing her first home at the age of 28 after establishing her career in international banking. This excitement shortly turned to terror with one phone call from a Bank of America representative on January 12, 1999. During this call, Michelle learned about an upcoming payment of a new truck. While that may not sound odd, this was the first time Michelle was learning about this truck. While she quickly put fraud alerts on her credit report, canceled her cards, and started monitoring her driver's license, her nightmare was far from over. It began in January 1998 with the theft of Michelle's rental application for her previous landlord's property management company. The thief obtained a lease, set up residential utility and residential telephone services in Michelle's name. In addition to the $32,000 truck, she also obtained cellular services. She went on to get a store credit card and even $5,000 worth of liposuction, all in Michelle's name. The, the identity theft then tricked the Fullerton, California Department of Motor Vehicles to give them a duplicate of Michelle's driver's license. The DMV issued the duplicate, even though at the time the thief weighed 40 pounds more than Michelle and was two inches shorter and completely different in a physical appearance. While things are already horrifying, it somehow got worse. In May of 1999, the fraudster was arrested by the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, and presented the false ID to the agents and federal judge. She then became a fugitive until she was turned in by one of her associates six months later. This does not end the nightmare for the real Michelle Brown, who was detained for over an hour after returning home from a trip to Mexico. She stated, quote, I was blatantly treated with strong suspicion. I was, as is typical for an identity fraud victim, guilty until proven innocent, end quote. She continued, quote, it was tormenting to know someone was in essence living the good life at my expense and I was left in the dust with the taxing chore of proving my innocence, end quote. So who was the woman behind this crime? Her name was Heidi LeRae. At this time of the crimes against Michelle Brown, she was 33 years old. Not much is known about Heidi, but she did have ties to a major drug trafficking ring, ties that later helped her reduce her prison time. In September of 1999, Heidi was convicted of perjury, grand larceny, and possession of stolen property. She was sentenced to two years each year to serve concurrently. She was also convicted of drug trafficking and sentenced to 73 months in a federal prison. This was reduced from 110 months after providing information to investigators. Now we look at the other side of identity theft that of the fraudster by exploring the case of the so-called Clark Rockefeller. This story was chronicled in the Lifetime original movie, Who is Clark Rockefeller? The answer, a German man named Christian Karl Gerthartsreiter. Christian Gerthartsreiter was born to Simon and Imgard Gerthartsreiter on February 21st, 1961 in Siegsdorf, Bavaria, West Germany. In 1978, Gert Hartzreiter met an American couple, Elmer and Jean Kellen, who were traveling in West Germany. He 
He later used their names to obtain permission to enter the U.S., falsely declaring that the Kellens had invited him to stay with them in California. After entering the country in New York City, Gerthardt's writer went to Berlin, Connecticut, where he found the family of author Edward Savio, telling them that he was from a wealthy family in West Germany. The family allowed him to live with them, and in 1979, he was accepted as a foreign exchange student at Berlin High School. He eventually left their home. Gerhardt's writer decided to move to California to pursue a career in acting. By the time he reached Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he had started calling himself, quote-unquote, Christopher Kenneth Gerhardt. While there, he enrolled in a class at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Deciding that he wanted to become a U.S. citizen, he married 22-year-old Amy Jerslid Dunkey in 1981 in Madison, Wisconsin, in order to obtain a green card. Gearhart's writer convinced Dunkey to marry him by falsely claiming that if he had gone back to West Germany, he would have to go into the military and be sent to fight in the Cold War on the Russian front line. The day after the wedding, he left his wife and headed for California, and Dunkey filed for divorce in 1992. Using the alias Christopher Chichester, Gerhardt's writer lived in the guest house of Didi Sohas in the upscale community of San Marino, California. Chichester was the last name of a teacher Gerhardt's writer was infatuated with while attending Berlin High School, according to Edward Savio. He was initially identified as a person of interest by police in the 1985 disappearance and death of Didi's son, Jonathan Sohas, and his wife, Linda. Gerhardt's writer reportedly told people that the couple had traveled to Europe. Their family received a postcard purportedly sent from France, though its authenticity has been questioned. In 1988, Gerhardt's writer was pulled over in Greenwich, Connecticut while driving a pickup truck that belonged to Jonathan Sohas, but he left the area before police could interview him. At that point, police had no proof that Jonathan and Linda Sohas were dead, nor that they had left California voluntarily. In May 1994, bones believed to belong to Jonathan Sohas were found buried in the backyard of the couple's former property. Sohas's family members said that the bones matched his general description. Since Sohas had been adopted, there was no way to compare his DNA against that of biological family members and arrive at a conclusive identity. Forensic evidence showed that the victim had been struck in the head two times with a rounded, blunt object and then stabbed six times. His body had been cut into three parts. The bones were not conclusively determined to belong to Sohas until 2010. After settling in Greenwich, Gerhard Schreider assumed the identity of Christopher C. Crow and claimed to be a television producer from Los Angeles who worked on the 1980s revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His alias matched the name of one of the producers for the series. Christian was hired by the brokerage firm S.N. Feltz and Company to work with the firm's computers, but was fired when it was discovered that the social security number he had given them belonged to serial killer David Berkowitz. He was also fired from his appointment by Nico Securities Limited as a sales manager of corporate bonds. Gerhardt's writer briefly worked for Kidder, Peabody, and Co., but quit his job and abandoned the Christopher Crowe persona when he discovered that police were looking for him in connection with Sohas's disappearance. In 1995, using the names James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller, Gerhardt's writer married Sandra Boss, a high-earning McKinsey senior executive. They were married in a Quaker ceremony that had no legal status. Boss later testified that Christian was charming and that she believed the stories he told her at the beginning of their relationship. Later, however, he became emotionally abusive and there was, quote unquote, lots of anger and yelling in their household. Although Boss earned all the household income, she testified that Gerhardt's writer held complete control of the family's finances and other aspects of her day-to-day -day life. The couple had a daughter born in 2001. Gerhardt's writer went to great lengths to conceal his true identity from his wife. 
He repeatedly told Boss to file her tax return as a single person. Later in their marriage, when McKinsey required that a certified public accountant do her taxes, Gerhardt's writer found an accountant for her. After their divorce, Boss learned that he had told their accountant he was her brother so that the accountant would continue filing single tax returns for her. Gerhardt's writer lived with his wife and daughter, in Cornish, New Hampshire, where he used his supposed family ties to the Rockefeller family to bolster his reputation, telling friends and neighbors that he was a wealthy Yale graduate who owned a business in Canada. Using the Clark Rockefeller persona, he had gained membership to Boston's Algonquin Club, where he spent a great deal of time. He resigned as one of the club's directors in April 2008. In 2006, Boss hired a private investigator and discovered that Gerhardt's writer was not who he claimed to be, although she did not learn his real name at that time. After divorcing him, Boss legally changed the name of their daughter and accused him of lying about his relation to the Rockefeller family. Members of the family came forward to deny any relation to Gerhardt's writer. Boss would later testify at Gerhardt Ryder's trial that he had agreed to give her custody of their daughter following the divorce and to supervise visits three times a year in return for an $800,000 settlement, two cars, her engagement ring, and a dress that he had given her. Boss moved with their child to London following the divorce. During a July 27, 2008 supervised visitation, Gerhardt's writer, his daughter, and a social worker were in Boston's Back Bay neighborhood on a walk to the Boston Common. Approached by a sport utility vehicle, Gerhardt's writer pushed aside the social worker, grabbed his daughter, jumped into the vehicle, and sped away. The social worker held onto the vehicle and was dragged a short distance before falling free. Later that night, a warrant charged Gerhardt's writer with custodial kidnapping, assault, and battery, and assault with a deadly weapon, the sport utility vehicle. On August 2, 2008, after a week-long search, Gerhardt's writer was found in Baltimore, Maryland, where he had recently purchased an apartment for about $450,000 under the name Charles Chip Smith. With the help of the owner of a local marina where Gerhardt's writer had apparently kept a catamaran, FBI agents were able to lure him out of the apartment with a telephone call telling him the boat was taking on water. He was arrested as he left the apartment on the kidnapping and assault charges. The child was found unharmed inside the apartment. On August 15, 2008, the FBI, the Massachusetts State Police, the Boston Police Department, and the Suffolk County District Attorney announced that Clark Rockefeller had been positively identified as Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. On March 15, 2011, Los Angeles County prosecutors charged Gerhardt's writer with the murder of Jonathan Sohas. The murder trial was held in March and April 2013 and ended with Gerhardt's writer being convicted of first-degree murder on April 10, 2013. On August 15, 2013, Gerhardt's writer was given the maximum sentence of 27 years to life with credit for one year served after finishing his sentence in Massachusetts. He maintained his innocence during the sentencing hearing and said, quote, I want to assert my innocence and that I firmly believe that the victim's wife killed the victim. But be that as it may, once again, I did not commit the crime of which I stand accused, end quote. His sentence was reduced on appeal in 2015 to 26 years to life. With good time credits, he will be eligible for parole in December 2029 when he will be 68 years old. A parole hearing is currently scheduled for November 2028. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the cases of Michelle Brown and Clark Rockefeller? I feel so bad for Michelle. Identity theft in her situation is something I'm really scared of. And I know we're going to talk about that a little more. You do hear about these extreme cases of identity theft from time to time. And some people even get arrested for crimes they don't commit, which is really, really scary to the average person. And I hope she's doing well because that, it sucks. Like she said that I had to prove that I was innocent when she knows she did nothing wrong. You have to, I think, be really desperate or just really remorseless to do what was done to her. 
with that level of identity theft. And as for Christian or Clark or whatever we want to call him, what a crazy, crazy story. It has so many twists and turns. So I'm not surprised that was also made into a movie. But it really blows my mind that people can get away with something like that for so long and just keep evolving. I mean, how many identities did we say he had? Like five, at least five? Um, I do think it was maybe a little easier back in the 70s and 80s to change your identity than it is now. But it's just so hard to believe that he just got away with so much for so long. And I do think that he likely killed Jonathan and Linda and maybe they caught onto his lie. And that's, you know, that was the motive. He does seem like a dangerous person. And I don't know, what do you think he's going to get paroled? I would be so surprised if they actually gave him parole. But we know that like the current system tends to parole people more often than not. But I think his history of shifting identities and the fact that he kidnapped his own child would hopefully mean that he wouldn't be released early. And I mean, when it comes to Michelle, I feel the same way as you do. I think that it's such a sad case and a case where it's so rare that it's hard to wrap your mind around what she was going through. And there's not much, you know, updates in terms of what she's doing now. She definitely did change her name and it's completely understandable why we don't have too much information about what's going on in her life now. What I did find strange when I was researching it is it's the same for Heidi as well, where there wasn't too much information about what's going on with her. A lot of the information came from Michelle's testimony in front of Congress but not too much in the way of like, where is Heidi? I can't even confidently say whether she's still in jail or whether she's out. Did she go back to crime? I think that definitely when it comes to her, I would hope that she was in prison for a lot longer. The fact that she only got two years, technically, when you look at the total damage that she did to Michelle Brown's life is insane to me. I know that she got more time for drug trafficking, but just imagine she wasn't doing that. That means for completely ruining Michelle's life, she would have only been in prison for two years. Yeah, I also... So when we post on social media, we always have like a picture of people involved in the case. And I could not find anything uh, for the real Michelle Brown or Heidi, I don't think. I only could find the Lifetime movie pictures. Um, So that's what everyone's going to be getting. Sorry about that. (laughs) Definitely understandable. Yeah, and I think it's so strange because I think a lot of people have an easier time kind of understanding and really simple like sympathizing with certain cases when they're able to put a face to the crime. Um, and in this situation, well, for Michelle Brown, we're not. We are able to put a face to Clark Rockefeller as he wanted to be called for a duration of his life after Hush Rider. But that he looks like someone that just is up to no good. Have you looked at pictures of him yet? I have, yeah. He does look like a villain from a movie. (laughs) (laughs) A central premise in both of these cases is identity theft. While this has always been a crime, it has grown in prominence and severity with the advent of the internet. We are going to look at the types of identity theft, how someone is able to steal someone's personal information, how to discover if you have been a victim, and ways to protect yourself against this growing problem. Identity theft occurs when someone uses another person's personal identifying information like their name, identifying numbers or credit card numbers without their permission to commit fraud or other crimes. The term identity theft was coined in 1964. Since that time, the definition of identity theft has been statutorily defined throughout both the United Kingdom and the United States as the theft of personally identifiable information. 
In a 2018 study, it was reported that 60 million Americans' identities have been wrongfully acquired. Sources such as the nonprofit Identity Theft Research Center subdivide identity theft into five categories. The first is criminal identity theft, which is the posing of another person when apprehended for a crime. Charges may be placed under the victim's name, letting the criminal off the hook. Victims might only learn of such incidents by chance, for example, by receiving a court summons, discovering their driver's license are suspended when stopped for minor traffic violations, or through background checks performed for employment purposes. It can be difficult for the victim of criminal identity theft to clear their record. The steps required to clear the victim's incorrect criminal record depends on which jurisdiction the crime occurred and whether the true identity of the criminal can be determined. The victim might need to locate the original arresting officer and prove their own identity by some reliable means, such as fingerprinting or DNA testing, and may need to go to a court hearing to be cleared of the charges. Obtaining an expungement of court records may also be required. Authorities might permanently maintain the victim's name as an alias for the criminal's true identity in their criminal records databases. One problem that victims of criminal identity theft may encounter is that various data aggregators might still have incorrect criminal records in their databases, even after court and police records are corrected. Thus, a future background check may return the incorrect criminal records. This is just one example of the kinds of impact that may continue to affect the victims of identity theft for some months or even years after the crime, aside from the psychological trauma that being quote-unquote cloned typically engenders. This is what happened to Michelle Brown and caused her detainment by customs authorities. The most common type of identity theft is related to finance. Financial identity theft includes obtaining credit, loans, goods, and services while claiming to be someone else. A subcategory of tax-related identity theft, it's the most common method to use a person's authentic name, address, and social security number to file a tax return with false information and have the resulting refund direct deposited into a bank account controlled by the thief. The thief in this case can also try to get a job and then their employer will report the income of the real taxpayer. This then results in the taxpayer getting in trouble with the IRS. The 14039 form to the IRS is a form that will help one fight against a theft like tax theft. This form will put the IRS on alert and someone who believes they have been a victim of tax-related theft will be given an identity protection, personal identification number, an IP PIN, which is a six-digit code used in replacing a social security number for filing tax returns. Next, we'll look at identity cloning, which is using another's information to assume his or her identity in daily life. In this situation, the identity thief impersonates someone else to conceal their own true identity. Examples are illegal immigrants hiding their illegal status, people hiding from creditors or other individuals, and those who simply want to become quote-unquote anonymous for personal reasons. Another example is posers, a label given to people who use someone else's photos and information on social networking sites. Posers mostly create believable stories involving friends of the real person they are imitating. Unlike identity theft used to obtain credit, which usually comes to light when the debts amount, Concealment may continue indefinitely without being detected, particularly if the identity thief can obtain false credentials to pass various authentication tests in everyday life. The next subcategory is medical identity theft. Medical identity theft occurs when someone seeks medical care under the identity of another person, and this includes seeking drugs as well. Insurance theft is also very common. If a thief has your insurance information or your insurance card, they can seek medical attention posing as you. In addition to the risks of financial harm common to all forms of identity theft, the thief's medical history can be added to the victim's medical records. Inaccurate information in the victim's records is difficult to correct and may affect future insurability and cause doctors to rely on misinformation when delivering appropriate care to the victim. 
The final subcategory is child identity theft. Child identity theft occurs when a minor's identity is used by another person for the imposter's personal gain. The imposter can be a family member, a friend, or even a stranger who targets children. The social security numbers of children are valued because they do not have any information associated with them. Thieves can establish lines of credits, obtain driver's license, or even buy a house using a child's identity. This fraud can go undetected for years as most children do not discover the problem until years later. Child identity theft is fairly common and studies have shown that the problem is growing. The largest study of child identity theft, as reported by Richard Power of the Carnegie Mellon Scilab with data supplied by All Clear ID, found that of 40,000 children studied, 10.2% were victims of identity theft. So before we go into the different ways that thieves can obtain personal information, Jenny, do you have any thoughts on just the myriad of different types of identity theft? It's interesting to learn more about them because I think most often people think of like the financial identity theft or maybe like medical identity theft. I do think that child identity theft is an issue, like we said, a growing issue because I feel like I have been hearing about that more recently. And even when I look into other cases, I hear about that. I feel like there is something really despicable about it because often it's children that have died who people are using. That's the identity people are using. So that's like a you know extra nefarious part of it. Hearing about how the expungement of court records and how like not everything is always set up correctly in the system. So if, you know, some your identity was stolen and used for nefarious things, you the criminal record like could still possibly be in there. That's kind of what I was referring to when I was saying like how scary I think it is. I can't even imagine the stress that must stress that causes for people having to kind of put their lives back together, depending on how severe the identity theft was. It's, it's really scary. Any, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, no, I just agree with you. And I think identity theft is one of those crimes where you never know when you're going to be re-victimized by it. You think that everything is fine. It's been years since it happened. And then you're applying for a new job and they use a data broker that doesn't have correct records. And this comes up. And a lot of times in those cases, it's not like you have an opportunity to explain why this is coming up, you know, saying that you have been a victim. It's just something where you are denied a job, you're denied other things that require a clear background. And I agree that I think a lot of times people do focus on the financial crimes, uh, mostly because when you look at kind of like the headlines for it, it's related like, oh, all this money was stolen. But sometimes the most nefarious things happen in like the child identity or medical identity realm when people's lives, although monetarily it's not as much, they're being affected in really strong ways. Like just imagine that you find out you can't get medical insurance because someone else, you know, stole your identity. That's definitely would be really impactful, really insane, and really just harmful for you in general and harmful to your health. But there are numerous ways that a thief obtains personal information. These include, but are definitely not limited to, retrieving personal information from redundant IT equipment and storage media, including PC servers, PDAs, mobile devices, USB memory sticks, and hard drives that have been disposed of carelessly at public dump sites, given away, or sold on without having been properly sanitized. Using public records about individual citizens published in official registers such as electoral rolls, stealing bank or credit cards, identification cards, passport, authentication tokens, typically by pickpocketing, housebreaking, or mail theft, skimming information from bank or credit cards using compromised or handheld card readers, or creating 
clone cards. Shoulder surfing involves an individual who discreetly watches or hears others providing valuable personal information. This is particularly done in crowded places because it is relatively easy to observe someone as they fill out forms, entering pens on ATMs, or even type passwords on smartphones. Stealing personal information from computers using breaches in browser security or malware, such as a Trojan horse, keystroke, logging programs, or other forms of spyware. Hacking computer networks, systems, and databases to obtain personal data, often in large quantities. Exploiting breaches that result in the publication or more limited disclosure of personal information, such as names, addresses, social security number, or credit card numbers. Advertising bogus job offers to accumulate resumes and applications, typically disclosing applicants' names, home, and email addresses, telephone numbers, and sometimes their banking details. Exploiting insider access and abusing the rights of privileged IT users to access personal data on their employer systems. Impersonating trusted organizations and emails, SMS, text messages, phone calls, or other forms of communication to dupe victims into disclosing their personal information or login credentials. Typically on a fake corporate website or data collection form, which is known as phishing. Brute force attacking weak passwords and using inspired guesswork to compromise weak password reset questions. Browsing social networking websites for personal details published by users, often using this information to appear more credible in subsequent social engineering activities. Diverting victims' email or posts to obtain personal information and credentials such as credit cards, billing, and bank or credit card statements, or to delay the discovery of new accounts and credit agreements opened by the identity thieves and the victims' names. Using false pretenses to trick individuals, customer service representatives, and help desk workers to disclose personal information and login details or changing user passwords, access rights, which is pretexting. Low security privacy protection on photos that are easily clickable and downloaded on social networking sites and befriending strangers on social networks and taking advantage of their trust until private information is given, which is called social engineering. Unfortunately, a victim may not know immediately that their identity has been compromised. Many people do not find out that their identities have been stolen until they are contacted by their financial institutions or discover suspicious activities on their bank accounts. According to an article by Herb Weisbaum, everyone in the United States should assume that their personal information has been compromised at one point. The following are 11 indicators that someone else might be using your identity. Credit or debit card charges for goods or services that you are not aware of, including unauthorized withdrawals from your account. Receiving calls from credit or debit card fraud control departments, warning of possible suspicious activity on your credit card account, receiving credit cards that you did not apply for, receiving information that a credit scoring investigation was done. They are often done when a loan or phone subscription was applied for. Checks bouncing for lack of enough money in your account to cover the amount. This might have been the result of unauthorized withdrawals from your account. Identity theft criminals may commit crimes with your personal information. You may not realize this until you see the police on your door arresting you for crimes that you did not commit. Sudden changes to your credit score may indicate that someone else is using your credit cards. Services, bills for services like gas, water, electricity not arriving in time. This can be an indication that your mail was stolen or redirected. Not being approved for loans because your credit report indicates that you are not credit worthy. Receiving notifications from your post office informing you that your mail is being forwarded to another unknown address. Your yearly tax returns indicate that you have earned more than you have actually earned. This might indicate that someone is using your national identification number, your SS. N for American citizens to report earnings to the tax authorities. Of course, this list is not exhaustive, but these are just some signs that people may see if their identity has been stolen. Jenny, do you have any thoughts on these signs or the different ways that thieves may obtain people's personal identifiable information? I think 
basically everything we said too is why it's so scary because this can happen to anyone. And I'm sure everyone listening has got an email from a fake Amazon saying, oh, your account, something's up with your account. We need your password to take a look or your car insurance is up for renewal, like something like that. Everyone has gotten that kind of email and everybody is vulnerable to this crime more than any that we've talked about on here. Just hearing like the lengths that scammers will go to to get this information is mind boggling. It's I think enough to make anyone not really feel safe and to question things. I don't know. It's it's really crazy. What do you think? I agree. It's one of those scary things because you shouldn't have to be on such high alert when it comes to your own information and making sure that someone else is not stealing it. But in this day and age, you have to because you never know who is trying to steal your identity, who is trying to use the hard work that you've put into making sure that you're able to have nice things, use that for their own benefit. I think the tax thing makes me especially nervous because like. I just can't imagine like going to file my taxes and looking at the number and it being just completely wrong and trying to figure out and try not to go to jail for like tax fraud because someone else stole your social security information and is using it for a job. It's like on one end, you feel bad that the person had to use someone else's social security number to get a job that's definitely not a good thing it's not a good sign but on the other end it's like hey like you're messing me up here i'm now going to go to jail because you decided to steal my identity so it's a definitely a double-edged sword but for me when it comes to just in general thinking about criminal scammers are some of the lowest of low for me because you definitely have marked effect on someone's life, which could last for the rest of their life, depending on the type of fraud you committed against them. And even if it's something like tax fraud, just imagine like for the rest of that person's life every year, they're reminded that their identity was stolen because they need to use a IP pen to file their taxes. They can't do it normally like everyone else can. That must just be a frustrating experience. Yeah, that was interesting to hear about. I had no idea that that is something that the IRS does, but I'm glad to see that there is a way. I mean, maybe it's like the bare minimum of how to support these people that have done it, but I guess it is a way to try to help keep them safe and their information safe. Due to the rise of identity theft, countries have enacted laws to combat it in its various forms. Companies have also enacted policies to adhere to regulations and protect customers' information. In the U.S., there is the Identity Theft Deterrence Act. It's a statute or the statute now makes the possession of any quote-unquote means of identification to quote knowingly transfer, possess, or use without lawful authority and quote a federal crime alongside unlawful possession of identification documents. However, for federal jurisdiction to prosecute, the crime must include a quote-unquote identification document that either A is purportedly issued by the U.S., B, is used or intended to defraud the U.S., C, is sent through the mail, or D, is used in a manner that affects interstate or foreign commerce. Most states have their own identity theft statutes that criminalize it further within that state's borders. In Canada, under Section 402.2 of the Criminal Code, everyone commits an offense who knowingly obtains or possesses another person's identity information in circumstances giving rise to a reasonable inference that the information is intended to be used to commit an indictable offense that includes fraud, deceit, or falsehood as an element of the offense is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years or is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. In Canada, the Privacy Act, which is federal legislation, covers only federal government agencies and crown corporations. Each province and territory has its own privacy law and privacy commissioners to limit the storage and use of personal data. 
in the United Kingdom, personal data is protected by the Data Protection Act of 1998. The act covers all personal data which an organization may hold, including names, birthday and anniversary dates, addresses, and telephone numbers. Poor stewardship of personal data by organizations resulting in unauthorized access to sensitive data can expose individuals to the risk of identity theft. The Privacy Rights Clearinghouse has documented over 900 individual data breaches by U.S. companies and government agencies since January 2005, which together have involved over 200 million total records containing sensitive personal information, many containing social security numbers. Business operations require the exchange of customer information, but companies that take customer data security seriously can build trust between themselves and their customers. To protect consumer data, organizations can take the following steps. Collect only data vital to do business with customers, limit who can access customer data, boost cybersecurity and control access through password management tools, implement a strong data management strategy, and store data in a centralized location. Set minimum security standards with which the organization complies. Jenny, do you think there are additional steps that governments and companies should be taking when it comes to protecting people's personal information? There probably is, but I guess I don't fully like understand that side of everything to know like to make a good recommendation. I'm sure people are familiar with uh, some companies will hire like quote unquote hackers to try to like hack into their system to then try to build up the system to protect people's information, which I think is kind of a cool thing. And hopefully like it does help and keeps people's information safe. I think it's kind of interesting how everything is like state by state or like territory by territory in the US and Canada. I guess I can't really say if that's like the best thing or not, because Maybe people in would target people in certain states because there's like weaker um, legislation in place. Who knows? It's good that there is stuff in place to begin with, because like we said, this is like a common thing and people, hackers and scammers like evolve with all this data. I guess I think it would be good for governments just to like stay up to date with how people are being targeted and how identity thieves are what their like trends are I guess you could say what people are commonly doing how they're changing and just going off of that and seeing what needs to be put in place and just staying up to date with things what are your thoughts I agree I think the biggest way that the government can help with reducing identity theft is just staying on top of what the identity thieves are using to defraud because unfortunately in a lot of cases the law is always behind the criminals in terms of you know the law is always catching up to the different ways that criminals are victimizing individuals and i think that if there was a quicker process to just recognize Okay, how is the internet being used? How is different avenues such as mail being used? I think that the government can address it a lot quicker. When it comes to corporations, I think the biggest thing is if you don't need the information, don't collect the information. I understand that corporations might think that they have the best cybersecurity and they can protect it, but the fact that there have been over 900 individual breaches in the last almost 20 years is absolutely ridiculous and definitely an indication that something is going wrong. If you look at a total of 2 million records, that means two-thirds of the U.S. population has been affected by companies mishandling their personal information and allowing that to be access by identity thieves, which is definitely not something that we want to see. We can't get around sharing information with corporations, but like you said before, in terms of building trust, companies definitely need to show that when it comes to just like their business information they want to protect, they should be protecting customers' personal information. 
According to NerdWallet, there are 11 ways to start protecting yourself against identity theft. While this is not bulletproof, these tips can be a great way to start thinking about how to protect your most sensitive information. The first is freeze your credit. Freezing your credit with all three major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, restricts access to your records so new credit files cannot be opened. It's free to freeze your credit and unfreeze when you want to open an account, and it provides the best protection against an identity thief using your data to open a new account. The next is safeguarding your social security number. Your social security number is the master key to your personal data. Guard it as best you can. When you are asked for your number, ask why is it needed and how it would be protected. Don't carry your card with you. Securely store or shred paperwork containing your social security number. The next is to be alert to phishing and spoofing. Scammers can make phone calls appear to come from government entities or businesses, and emails that appear to be legitimate may be attempts to steal your information. Initiate a callback or return email yourself working from a known entity, such as the official website, rather than responding to a call or email. And be wary of attachments, meaning contain malware. The next is using strong passwords and add an authentication step. Use a password manager to create and store complex, unique passwords for your accounts. Make sure not to reuse passwords. Adding an authenticator app can reduce your risk. Don't rely on security questions to keep your account safe. Your mother's maiden name or your pet's name aren't hard to find. Think carefully about what you post on social media so you don't give away key data or clues as to how you answer security questions. Next is using alerts. Many financial institutions will text or email when transactions are made on your account. Sign up so that you know when and where your credit cards are used, when when there are withdrawals or deposits to financial accounts, and more. You can also watch your mailbox. Stolen mail is one of the easiest paths to a stolen identity. Have your mail held if you're out of town and consider a U.S. Postal Service approved lockable mailbox. You can also sign up for informed delivery through the USPS, which gives you a preview of your mail so you can tell if anything is missing. Then, of course, is shredding documents. Any credit card, bank, or investment statements that someone could fish out of your garbage shouldn't be there in the first place. Shred junk mail too, especially pre-approved offers of credit. And use a digital wallet. If you're paying online or in a store, use a digital wallet, an app containing secure digital versions of credit and debit cards. You can use it to shop online or at a compatible checkout terminal. Transactions are tokenized and encrypted, which makes them safer. In addition, contactless transactions have fewer health risks. The next is protect your mobile devices. Mobile devices can be a real risk. According to Jovelin's report, only 48% of us routinely lock our mobile devices. Use passwords on your electronic devices. Use a banking app rather than a mobile browser for banking. Number 10 is check your credit report regularly. The three major credit reporting bureaus are giving consumers access to free credit reports weekly through the end of 2023, accessible by using annualcreditreport.com. Check to be sure that accounts are being reported properly and watch for signs of fraud like accounts you don't recognize. The final one is monitoring your financial and medical statements. Make sure that you read your financial statements. Make sure that you recognize every transaction. No due dates and call to investigate if you do not receive an expected bill. Review the explanation of benefit statements to make sure that you recognize the services provided to guard against healthcare fraud. Janine, do you have any thoughts on the different tips provided by NerdWallet on how people can start to protect themselves against identity theft? 
I would definitely say, well, first off, I'll say that there's some things on here I already do. So that's good to see. But there is some stuff I learned. I didn't know that using a digital wallet is generally safer. I also didn't know that you could get a lockable mailbox. I think that's kind of fun. I'm going to Google them to see what they look like. But I think using the alerts like on your credit card or from your bank is really important. I do that. And it also if you're trying to budget, it also helps you kind of like keep track of your budget, getting the alerts to know how much you're spending. Or, you know, if you're out and you have like five alerts, you're like, Ooh, maybe next time I go out, I shouldn't spend that much. But I would also say, I think the authentication step is really, really important, especially for social media. I know on Facebook, how many people do we know who's like they've had an account that got hacked. But I think that is less likely to happen with the authentication. And it's, I think, easier if your account does get hacked. I think having that extra step in there might help you uh, regain your account easier. Don't quote me on that. But there is like something in regards to having to use your email look into that for yourself. But it definitely, the authentication is a big help on social media for sure. What do you think, Del? Did you learn anything? Definitely. I think the biggest thing is the freezing and unfreezing of your credit. It might seem like a pain, you know, every time you want to do something, unfreezing it. Same thing with like the authentication is like, oh my gosh, I have to type in another code. But, you know, just know that the extra couple of seconds that we'll be spending doing this is helping to protect us against, you know, clearing our name, uh, protecting our accounts. If there's ever a time where they may be compromised. So I definitely now take the time to make sure that I am like adding those uh, like two-factor authentication and, you know, freezing credit. Some of these other things is definitely things that I already do, like the informed delivery through the USPS. I signed up for that a while ago. And it definitely is something that is really important. I think one thing that I did was the explanation of benefits. Typically, it's not something that I look at, but I definitely will start looking at it because you kind of think like, oh, whatever, like the insurance pay for it. But you want to make sure that the insurance is paying for the services that you were providing, that someone else has been gaining access to it. Yeah, I don't think I've really thought about that, the explanation of benefits, but I think we can all probably do some more, you know, some due diligence. We can all benefit from it. Exactly. And, you know, like we've said pretty frequently on this, the extra time that you'll spend looking at those alerts, looking at those explanation of benefits are going to help you in the long run protect your identity. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the cases of Michelle Brown and Clark Rockefeller. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.